before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 25. As always, joined by the three amigos, we've got Rich Diaz, the Tom Brady of Macro with Acorn Macro Consulting. And we've got uh, Keith Dicker at Grandma's house today, uh, live filming from Newfoundland of Ice Cap Asset Management, everyone's favorite boomer. Uh, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. We've got a action-packed episode. Uh, bear with us, Keith uh, is... is owes some money to the fine jar. He forgot his podcast mic on his road trip. So bear with us. But, um, oh, and I also want to preface that all we ask when we record these shows that you share this episode with at least one person to continue building the Looney Hour community. But let's uh, let's start the show off with what's going viral on Twitter these days, which is the U.S., a chart of the U.S. mortgage rates. Uh, you know, it's not a Dogecoin chart. It, it certainly looks that way. Um, but we've had a huge spike in U.S. mortgage rates. I think they're clipping, what, 4.8% roughly, something like that. Um, so huge move above pre-pandemic uh, levels. And uh, that's filtering through to Canada because we've got some, an update here. We talked about it a little bit last week uh, on, on mortgage rates. But uh, so we officially, officially have mortgage rates, the five-year fixed mortgage in Canada, which is the most popular product. The five-year fixed rate mortgage in Canada is now north of 4% at, at several of the large big banks in Canada. Uh, that's as of today, as of this recording. So anyone that's basically walking into the branch today and says, hey, I want to get a pre-approval. I'm looking at buying a house in the next couple months. That's the rate that they're going to give you as a sort of pre-approval rate hold. So when you go to make your purchase, that's the rate that you're going to get, unless you go variable, which is still around 2.1% roughly. So obviously it's still a big discount there, but your five-year fix has never been this high. I think we have to go back to, don't quote me on this. I think 2012, 20, 2011, I want to say it was the last time we had rates at these levels. And of course we know prices were obviously much, much lower. So I, I, I am of the view that something is going to have to give. I'm kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts, but I did have, you know, I, I did a, a longer form video of this on my own channel there because I got into it once one of the bank economists here in Canada on Twitter, we were having a back and forth and, you know, he was of the view again, that bank of Canada is going to raise rates eight times this year, which again, I think we all think is kind of ridiculous. And I says, well, I mean, the housing market is already slowing significantly. I can tell you from a feed on the ground perspective that prices are easing off. Demand is waning. I think people are now in the camp of let's, let's sit tight. Let's wait. I'm getting, you know, buyers now like, you know what, Steve, we're just going to hold off. We want to see how this plays out. And so I think that these economists are missing out on the human element, which is markets are predominantly sentiment driven. Uh, yes, there's a liquidity component to that, but there's a lot of it is sentiment based and, and housing, which is a very slow moving market. Um, 
people tend to wait when prices are going up, they want to jump in because they think they're missing out. And when prices start dropping, they want to sit and wait. So um, yeah, I was arguing with this economist because he's like, well, listen, our view is eight rate hikes. And yes, we think housing demand will slow, sales will slow, but prices will, will not move. And I'm like, really? Like mortgage rates at four? I mean, so Keith, uh, we were running the numbers here pre-show um, just to give you guys an example. So well, two, three months ago, your five-year fixed mortgage rate was about 2.6 roughly. Today, you're at about 4 to 4.1%. Um, so if you take a 600K mortgage, which in Canada, I think is relatively conservative, 600K mortgage, 25-year amortization, um, your payment in, would increase today by about 500 bucks a month. So going from 2.6 several months ago, to about 4% today, you're up about 500 bucks a month. So um, I don't know if any of you guys want to chime in uh, in terms of thoughts for for the market here in terms of your views. You go ahead, okay. Keith. Sure thing. Uh, so first of all, with people need to uh, understand, appreciate, they, what's the, uh, they very rarely would they assign a high probability to a crisis event ever occurring. So it's always a normal cycle, never too high, never too low. So for them to, uh, you know, so you mentioned you had that sort of back and forth with an economist. Which, can you imagine having a conversation with a real economist? <laughs> Not just on Twitter, but in real life. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And need uh, a couple shots. Yeah, it can, there are some good ones out there, though. Some guys have some great great uh, personalities but back to the bank economists in in general they're not in the business of using hyperbole for anything because remember they they provide ideas uh they're producing this stuff for the bank uh, they're at the executive level for the investment research arm sorry investment management arms of the bank financing you, you name it so they're never going to walk in and say guys this housing market is just going to get crushed we need to sell our entire mortgage portfolio. I mean, that, that doesn't happen because if he makes that call and it doesn't happen, you know, he's out of a job, his career is over. So you always want to be right as a group or wrong as a group. You know, it, it's really career risk. You never want to sort of, you know, stick your head up in the, uh, in the field. Uh, the other interesting thing, I think we talked about this before a few months back, but there's a, I forget the name of it, it's, it's down in America, but there's a, a professional forecasters association and they, they've been keeping track of their consensus estimate for a lot of different things. But for the GDP number, this goes back to 1971. And I think there's been, you, you can check it out on, on the charts, but maybe let's say nine recessions since then, nine or seven, I don't know what the number is. This, this group of professional economists or consensus number, they've never predicted a recession. They never got close to the number, but they've never ever predicted a recession happening. So, so think about that for a moment. They've never said, you know what? Yeah, we might roll into, the re into a recession here. So my point is, especially with people on social media these days and hearing the bank's forecast for this or that, as we mentioned before, guys, something that's going to break here in the marketplace and no one at the bank level, at the consensus level, they're never going to, you know, they might talk about it behind the scenes, but they're never going to say, yeah, guys, th th this housing market is in trouble or this equity market is in trouble or whatever. You ain't going to get that. So well, that's a little bit of preamble there. 
this is this is also why we started the show, right? I mean, Keith, I remember you and I having conversations offline, which was that you know your mainstream media or your financial media in Canada is so dominated by the big five banks, you know, spewing out consensus. You know, nobody wants to step out of line. Like no, again, like no one's ever going to make any bold calls because um, they're not really incentivized to. And um, yeah, I just we, we always thought that the financial media landscape in Canada was was very dry and, and stale, and that's obviously why we started the podcast. And I know Rich is in that same sort of you know camp as well. I think I know it was that peach piece that I was reading on, on Rosenberg research. There was like eighty percent of economists' forecasts are wrong or something. And I mean, we've got Rich on the show here. I mean, Rich is batting about a hundred percent. So, uh, Rich, I don't know if you have any input there. I mean, I'm definitely not batting hundred percent, but, um, I've definitely, I've had a good year. <laughs> what are you going to do next year? will probably be shit. But, um, I think that's, there's a couple of things I want to point out. One, I think it's really important to differentiate between what's going on in the U S and in Canada. Um, so when we talk about the Canadian, um, housing market, um, I think that it's, it's massively overvalued, um, on different metrics. One is the bank of Canada's own housing affordability metrics, which is at a, a 30 year high. Another one, another two, excuse me, are the OECD home price to income ratios, host house price to rent ratios. Um, you can look at, there's a company called Demographia that do an assessment of hundreds of rich nation cities that um, do household income to median household price. Um, you know, five or six uh, Canadian cities are in the extreme overvalued, um, you know, um, section or quintile or whatever it is. Um, you know, Canada has much, much more housing debt relative to income, relative to GDP. Uh, there's a spin of speculative fervor that I think has been happening in Canada that I, I just, I, I can't in good faith say that that's happening in the U.S., <laughs> This is despite the fact that the U.S. house price, I think the case Shiller came out a couple of days ago and it was like 18 or 19% year on year. Um, the other thing that I think is really important um, is, you know, the U.S. has nowhere near the same supply dynamics coming forward. Uh, so there's two ways that you can look at that. One is like months supply of new homes. The U.S. Um, is, you know, 6.3. That's, you know, quite normal. Um, and then existing homes is at an all-time low, basically, with at two two percent. Sorry, sorry, two months of excuse me of, of existing homes. It's not clear that um, with what we know about capital expenditures in the residential um, sector, and you've shown this chart, Steve, and and maybe we'll show it again, which is you know I think it's like nine percent of GDP or whatever it is at residential capex. So. Anyways, I just I, I so I think it's really important that when we talk about this, I think it's it's fair and important to differentiate between kind of the silliness that's going on um, in Canada and um, and and what's going on in the U.S. Um, that, that, that's all, Mike. That I just wanted to say about that. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you because I think you do hear a lot of like sort of uh, mainstream pundits talking about like the strength of like the U.S. you know household balance sheet or whatever. Right? Like the consumer is strong, and so I'm not sure if you can really apply that same sort of commentary on Canadian households, right? I think the one point, as you mentioned there as well, which is like, if you guys want to just simply, if any listener just wants to like dumb it down, 
all you have to do is look at Canadian household de debt to, to U.S. household debt. So what happened in 2008, 2009 is U.S. households delevered, right? Like they went through a very painful foreclosure process, people losing homes, going through bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera. Those balance sheets, they delevered a lot of that debt. Whereas Canada, we basically papered over the, the, the global financial crisis, right? Like there wasn't really a dip in the housing market and the household balance sheets never delevered. So you basically just have this continuation of rising household indebtedness. And there's plenty of brilliant academic research out there that suggests the bulk of financial crises are almost always stemmed from the private sector. So it's always typically speaking a household balance sheet crisis or a corporate balance sheet crisis. Um, that is typically where you see most of your sort of quote unquote financial crises stem from. So that, that really is, is the risk to the Canadian housing market. So when we see again, the hockey stick chart on mortgage rates, you know, not only in the U S but in Canada, I think that the Canadians are going to be much, much more sensitive um, to that. So I'll be curious to see kind of switching gears here. Curious to see how, how this obviously plays out. You guys know my views. I think if these rates hold uh, for a period of time, not like one month or three months, I think these have to hold for six or seven months. I do think that we are going to see a material slowdown in Canadian housing activity, uh, which then leads me to the question of, um, you know, what do governments do to react? I mean, it's what, 20% of GDP, um, some interesting things. I don't know if you guys saw this. I had a good chuckle. Um, some commentary from uh, Australia, which is basically very similar to Canada in the fact that they never delivered their balance sheets in the financial crisis. They have record high house prices and record debts. Uh, so the Aussie prime minister was out recently. They, they, they uh, updated their housing program to provide more supports. Um, so basically what they're doing is they are uh, doubling their successful home guarantee scheme to 50,000 places. So basically what they're doing is they're helping more single parents buy homes with deposits as low as 2%, 2% down payment for first time home buyers. Um, and uh, so their Aussie prime minister was out saying that if, if renters are looking for rent relief, they should just buy a house instead. Uh, He's I'll, not wrong. <laughs> and I'll, I'll quote, he goes, the best way to support people who are renting a house is to help them buy a house. And over the last three years, we've got over 300,000 Australians directly in their own home and particularly single moms. So uh, it seems we've learned nothing yeah. from the uh, global financial crisis. I, I want to I add something to it. I think, um, so I think it's really important when we, when we hear politicians talk about wanting more affordable housing. The trick about affordable housing is you need house prices to fall relative to income. And I can assure you that no politician, probably in the history of mankind, has ever successfully won a, an election on the platform or on the manifesto that house prices are going to crash. And so I think it's just, you know, we need to be very, very careful when uh, it's just it's just not the way you get elected at all, you know, um, and in, in the real world, to quote Keith, they don't, they actually, you know, gun to the head, none of these people want house prices to fall at all. I mean, um, especially if you look at where their constituents are voting for them. I mean, if house prices in Toronto fell 30%, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't be the same color in the following election. So I, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny the way they, 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 they frame it. Keith? Just, yeah, just, I mean, you mentioned, for example, like down down in uh, Australia, if you put a two percent down on your house, 
So if you get a 2% correction, so say you buy a, yes, it's a, say it's a million dollar house, right? And then all of a sudden rates go up a little bit. So you have $20,000 of equity in your house, right? And if, if the market comes down 2%, your equity is wiped out. You know, and all of a sudden the market comes down, say 10%, all of a sudden you have negative equity in your house. Like it's, it's, it's just not right to do that. And uh, so anyway, hopefully you know, it, it does work out for that, for that program down there. But I just wanted to comment on, on something else. Uh, one, one thing, uh, so, so back before the, you know, the housing crisis ended down in the US in 08, 09, uh, I remember having a, like, our investment committees at the time where, where I was working. You know, you're, you're in this room and a bunch of like really smart humans and, uh, you know, the consensus that they all pump out was that, hey, real estate is, is regional. So you're either exposed to say like, you know, the financial sector or the oil sector or the tech market or, or something like that. And there's never been a national correction or crisis in housing. It's, it's, it's never happened before. So therefore, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. Like that was the consensus view that I'm listening to. And um, of course, what happened was that, hey, yeah, there, there was a national crisis and it, you know, it engulfed the world. But what wasn't realized at the, or, or appreciated at the time was that, you know, we were, rates were held so low for so long. So in basically, uh, what, 02 to 06, maybe? Rich is yeah. the uh, smart guy, right? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. You know, the, the US was at 1% for long time two and a half two and a half to five years whatever it was so that's effectively the the zero percent rate that that's where it was and okay that caused everything to break and now here we are in in canada now we're like you know 14 years later we've also been living in this you know zero rate world negative rate world (laughs) yeah but let's just let's forget about real rates for example let's just look at nominal rates but you know we've been in this period where rates have always been low at zero there's nowhere else to go with it really on a nominal basis and yet you know that the, the bankers um you know government policymakers, at central banks whatever they they still refuse to acknowledge that hey this this has the potential to be a problem so what the solution is to this problem you know, they say, hey, let's let's make it easier for people to borrow more and stuff like that. And then what, what we always talk about is that, you know, when you're at zero rates and you're, you're doing quantitative easing, some people say printing money, you're bailing out different industries left or right, you're making some wacky uh, policy uh, changes, you know, because of climate change, that's gonna have a really big impact on the one of the main contributors to Canada's economy the probability of us experiencing some form of financial stress, if you want to use that word instead of crisis, it's sky high, guys. Like it's, it's extraordinarily high that something can, you know, snap, crackle, or pop here. And, you know, maybe we're starting to see the beginning of it now with rates creeping up a little bit. But again, no one is really ready for it or prepared for it. Because if it does happen, anyone who bought a house in the last two years, especially, you know, you're going to be underwater. You know, you have negative... Uh, equity on your house and what do you do then you know you the keys and you walk away well some people might but not not everyone but anyway but, but again i can't stress enough that the thought of a crisis of some sort in in real estate cannot happen it's based on a world where we've never been with zero rates and negative rates and, and qe and everything you know just be on your toes and you know be be open 
to some you know, big shifts coming up here. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess to, to push back on that slightly, I think if I think of national home prices corrected, God, I don't know, 20, 25%, I think you'd, you'd, you'd take it back to like the pre-pandemic levels, basically, pandemic, like, which are still really high. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really know how that plays out. But um, do you guys have any opinions on, I mean, Rich, on, you know, I know we were chatting about a little bit earlier there, but uh, how, how do you see this playing out? So like, again, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, inflation, transitory, where, where yields going to be, how far central banks are going to get. How are you guys, like, how are you guys looking at the bond market right now in the view that like, okay, you know, whatever, the 10 years way up, it's, it's moving very, very quickly. Does this break markets? You know, maybe not yet, but uh, you know, is, is there a recession call in 2023? Do, you know, do, do you, are yields close to like, you know, is the, is the long end of the curve close to peaking out here? Like, do we still got more room to, to, to go? Like, I mean, how, how are you guys kind of factoring this into your view right now? Um, so I'll never make a recession call uh, because I don't like forecasts for the same reason that Keith um, thinks that economists are a bunch of dummies. Um, I think as the data changes, you should change your view. And I think what happens with when you make a forecast is you become married to the forecast and your ego gets in the way of assessing the data dispassionately. So that's, that's my cop-out answer, a stroke, something I genuinely really believe in. Um, as far as the, 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 the yield, the bonds stuff, I think it's really, so just in general, I think there's two comments I'll make and then I'll pass it on. One is this idea that bond yields cannot rise and sustain that rise for, let's say, I don't know, 30 years or 20 years, I think is just, is just absurd from 1960, whatever, to 1989, which is almost 30 years. I mean, whatever dates you want to pick, bonds went one direct, bond yields went one direction upwards. Um, and so this idea that because of demographics, because of QE, because of this, because of that, that you just cannot ever see that again, I think is really poor analysis on the face of it. It's illogical. And I think we should just, the idea that it's impossible to me is kind of stupid. And I think we should be careful about that view. However, um, you know, those, then there's two questions that come up with that. When, where is the top of this 10 year bond yield? Who knows? Um, we've talked about on this pod before that, um, that financial repression is probably, you know, the goal of all the end game here for, for central bankers, whether it's through digital currency or who knows, but one way they can definitely do it is having, you know, interest rates just be, um, lower than inflation for a sustained amount of time. That's one way that you can kind of do financial oppression. Um, but the other thing is, I think, you know, and we've rightly called um, that I think that the, the bubble is not in equities. Um, and, I, and I maintain that. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean equities are going to do great, but I don't think the bubble is in equities. I think the bubble's in bonds. Um, and when, you know, eventually bubbles pop. Now, um, sometimes they pop and it's really nasty. And sometimes they kind of fizzle out as you can, you know, if you think of a balloon. Um, but I think what's really important is the idea that we can't just have a, a, you know, back to the original point, which is you can have a trending upwards um, yield, a bond yield. Um, and, in, and in that world, you probably have crappier returns on your equity portfolio and your housing portfolio. And, and you know, after 30 years of fantastic returns for asset holders, we're sort of due. So that, that's sort of the way I would frame it. Keith? 
two, so two things. The first one is on a longer term basis, demographics shows that the Canadian bond market just gets crushed, is destroyed. As, as everyone is getting older, all of a sudden you be, you move from being a you know a net saver to consumer with your money. So so right now there's still like savings are going into pension funds, which are going into bond markets like every single day, week and month and, and quarter. Uh, so one of the best ways to s- resolve this over the longer term, you know, Canada needs to get younger. So, um, you know, we have that not really happening right now. So that that's negative. As for the near term, um, I'm, I'm quite bearish on corporate credit. So credit spreads. So I can easily see an environment where, say, the government 10-year yield doesn't go up that much or even comes down. But credit spreads, like, you know, Rich mentioned, you know, that the bond market is, you know, it's, it's shite and you don't want to be in there and stuff like that. And I completely agree. And I could even see an environment where equities just surge, like they go up vertical. And that's during a period where the economy is declining, earnings are falling and, and stuff like that. So because like money is just, you know, running for cover or running away from the bond market. But right now, what's really interesting, for example, the yield on the two-year, let's use the U.S. as an example, the yield on the two-year is basically the same as the yield on the 10-year bond. So if you're going to invest your money for two years or 10 years and get the same yield, you know, which, which one are you going to take? You, you take the short end. You know? Why would you want to buy that long-term bond, which then expose you to so much more risk? So you know, I think we are um, you know, rich, you know, rich, rich was a fraidy cat and wouldn't, wouldn't predict a recession coming out. Yeah, I just noticed you are wearing glasses. I do like the glasses, by the way. <laughs> I always wear glasses. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I didn't notice that till last week. Um, but I think that the probability of, of growth coming down uh, a, a lot faster than what, what's been expected in the past is quite high. So that's why you, you will have this inversion on the yield curve. I know right now there are a lot of nerds out there discuss, discussing the yield curve, you know, you know, which party you're going to use or not. I think you're just, you know, splitting hairs with it. The, the fact is, the long end of the curve, it, it's it's not ripping higher, guys. It's 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 you know, we're kind of flattish because the front end has come up so much. And the real next big shock, financial market surprise, I think is going to be central banks not hiking rates as much as what they're expected to. And they, they pull back, which I think might lead into, uh, we want to talk about the Japanese. And wait, wait, yeah. As well, wait, right? wait, please, please. There's, there's two things I want to say. If they don't raise rates the way that they're expected to, if they, if they stop being as hawkish, I think that that 10-year goes hot, even higher still. But maybe that's a conversation for a different day. But I think that, you know, you can make the case that the, their hawkishness is what's keeping that long end actually down because people are afraid they're going to raise rates and induce a recession, which is, you know, why people are worried about growth. But there's just one other thing that I'm actually working on this right now with my analyst, Nathan, which is um, trying to sort of create some kind of heuristic for investors to give me and my clients a simple, like intuitive way of determining what the fair value bond yield should be. Now, loads of really, really smart people have done this before me. Um, So this is definitely not my idea. I'm just sort of trying to copy that benchmark. Um, But one of the ways that you can do this is sort of by finding um, sort of a long, the way you can, you know, one way that you can do this is by, you know, what is a bond? A bond is a risk-free instrument. And that risk-free instrument is basically supposed to be 
a way that you can determine, you know, whether you should invest in a, um, a risk-free rate or invest in something, some other instruments or, you know, hopefully generate a higher return. And that, and the way that you can analyze that is by looking at the gov- the, the economy as a whole and inflation. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it, but I think one way that you can, one really powerful tool is by looking at GDP growth over a certain amount of time and inflation. And by that metric, um, the, the, what, the inflation that we've seen has really changed um, what the fair value bond estimate to be. And so far, my model is pointing around 4%, which really, really changed everyone's view on housing and the equity market. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's just another way of sort of assessing what the fair value bond yield might be. So I, yeah. I, I, just, had a, I just had a text from Julian Brigden that says, uh, Rich, I'll give my model to you if you want it. um what was i gonna say but yeah so i mean that's uh yeah it's uh you know four four percent i think the the problem is you have these central banks intervening into these sort of quote-unquote free markets and gobbling up uh all the supply which i mean we'll we'll transition here because that brings that leads us to to the next conversation which is okay yields where are they going how are central banks going to react what is fair market value when they're buying up all this debt Let's talk about what's happening in Japan with uh, the BOJ, the Bank of Japan. Uh, so as you guys know, or maybe don't know, is um, quantitative easing was basically born in Japan. Um, so they're about a decade ahead of sort of the rest of us here. Um, and uh, what I don't know, what do they own now? Over 60% of the Japanese government bond market, something along those lines. And they've got a yield curve control. Um, but anyways, Keith, maybe maybe just update us here because what's been happening is the is the yen has been uh, falling uh, quite quite precipitously, and uh, the the governor there, the BOJ governor, was out recently saying, you know, they're basically going to throw the kitchen sink and buy as many uh, Japanese government bonds as they need to in order to uh, maintain their sort of yield cap, which I think is you know 025 percent. So uh, yeah, maybe just kind of walk us through what's going on over there. Yeah, so first of all, we, we have a path that we expect uh, you know, the global system will, will take, you know, who will experience stress. And we, we have the Japanese as the second last. So they're, you know, the Americans are the last and the Japanese, then Europeans, and before that, Canada and the new emerging markets and stuff. Maybe, maybe the Japanese are going to move to the front of the line, or maybe uh, all this happens extremely quickly and you're just really blurring in the lines. So first of all, uh, the, the Japanese, they've been in a, really this deflationary environment now for what, 25 years, maybe 30. I don't know what the, it's people have forgotten. <clears throat> this, the stock market is still not even close to the highs that are reached in 1989 or 91 or 92. It might be off a little bit with, with the year, but... And they've been, you know, doing quantitative easing or money printing, as people call it. They've been doing this forever to try to really get out of out of the funk. And one of the things that they never did, they never allowed the banks to write off the bad debt. So because of the big property boom they had in in the early '90s, and then it it snapped, like it it, it popped. You know, here you go, property bubble breaking. Um, the banks were not allowed to realize the losses and go under and restructure. It just wasn't acceptable. So instead, uh, they've been basically zombie banks for all that year. So I'm explaining this this for a reason. Um, so the central bank, in, in return, you know, they're they're printing money all the time or quantitative easing. It's not really money printing, guys, but it's a bit of a gray gray line there. 
but they've been doing this now for years and years. And the Japanese have always been held out as the as the poster poster child, I guess, the poster boy to show that, hey, you can do QE and nothing will ever go wrong. You don't need to worry about it. You know, why, why, are, why are people worried about the Americans and the Europeans and stuff like that? What is never, ever discussed is that in Japan, they've always had domestic savings. They always had positive domestic savings. So they don't need foreign investors coming in to buy their debt. So whereas in, in America, whenever they issue a treasury bond, you know, they need foreigners. They need the Chinese to come in, you know, any, everyone else, you know, to buy up treasuries and, and stuff like that. Japan doesn't need that. There's always enough savings domestically. So that, that means it's going through the pension fund system in, in Japan uh, to, to buy all, all the debt. They have it there. Uh, but because they have so much debt now and, you know, the banks, they, they still have to, they have, uh, you know, their interest expense every year on, on the debt. Same with the government. If they do get a sudden spike up in, in rates, you know, it's really going to create havoc, you know, on, on the system. So about 2014 or 15 or 13, I, I forget the, uh, the year, but I remember I was, I was presenting this group up in, uh, it was offshore actually, it was offshore. And uh, as the guys like the Bank of Japan came out and they said, we will never ever allow the, um, the Japanese government bond 10 year yield to go above, I think it was 20 basis points. I think that's no it was 10 basis points at the time and they said we'll always print enough money to, to cover that and that's what they did now all of a sudden they have to start doing it again so there has to be a relief valve somewhere and because we're now at this you know this precarious point around the world where everything's getting a bit tightened again all of a sudden the yen has started to sell off so we can be in this situation where rates do not go up in japan because again as you mentioned Steve, like they own basically the entire market same with equity markets as well, by the way. Um, so again, the relief valve would be the yen depreciating. So any foreigner that actually is invested there now, they say, you know what, I'm out of here. That's the line of the sand, we're gone. Maybe domestic money can start moving as well. So you can have the bond market staying where, where it is and then the currency coming out. So like the Japanese yen has been one of the biggest movers over the last couple of weeks. I think we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, it was something to watch. We and did. Um, yeah, and it's coming up like it again, it, it's really shocking because it, it plays over into what I think is going to happen in, in Europe next. So uh, unless you want to talk about Japan a, a bit more here, we can we can. Yeah, Rich, maybe your comments on Japan and then we'll, we'll shift gears into, into what's happening in Europe. Yeah, I just wanted to relate it sort of back to Canada and why the oil sector is so important. No, I'm kidding. I will, I will I'll spare everybody that. But but Canada, so you, um, Steve mentioned something really important, which is that the, Japan has a really, really excellent um, savings rate record, which is true. I mean, they, they do save. The other thing is really important is they have a current account balance that's positive. Um, and in a weird way, by allowing the yen to depreciate that will sort of, and you know, so there's different ways you can have a positive current account balance. One way is you export lots of stuff. The other way is that you own lots of foreign assets and then those assets will um, shed cash flows, profits or whatever. And then when you repatriate those profits, you can use them internally to buy, I don't know what Japanese people like to buy sushi or whatever, right? Or invest in beautiful buildings. I mean, Tokyo is one of those beautiful cities I've ever been to, but whatever it is. And so, um, and so bring it back to Canada. One of the things Canada does not have is uh, a strong record on savings. In fact, we have a, an absolutely abysmal savings um, rate relative to the rich countries. I think if not the worst, it's not third or whatever it is. 
And the other thing is um, Canada has a balance of payments, which is just at zero. Um, and just because I can't leave this alone, if it wasn't for oil, Canada was current account balance would be significantly, significantly well below zero. And add that from, so poor savings, uh, negative current account balance, and you're in for some trouble. And so that's why I think it's just such a fascinating kind of parable if we compare the two economies. One thing you left out, Keith, though, is that the population growth in Japan is shrinking quickly. And I think that that's another sort of death nail on that economy. But anyway, that's it for me on Japan. Yeah. Um, Japan, yeah, yeah but, the, but Japan, like they're, I know people have been saying this a long time, you know, they call it the widowmaker trade and all that stuff. But, but again, we are at the point now with the whole world that's zero negative and we're leaving that floor. And as soon as everyone leaves that floor, something's going to happen here and you shouldn't yeah. be shocked by it. And most Canadians are going to say, who cares about Japan? You know, I'm not investing in Japan. It's not going to bother me whatsoever. Yet, if you look at your balanced mutual fund, you have like you get, everyone has direct and indirect exposure to everywhere now. So again, remember, we've been a period of globalization for what, 30 years, maybe pretty strong. By the way, that's another conversation for another episode. Globalization is now dead. Like everything. No, come on. Brought back no again. It's not going to be as alive. As Definitely not. But the other thing, yeah. no, but Keith, just to, you're wrong about that. But what you right are, are right oh, about is. There we go. Twinkie bat. <laughs> Twinkie you, bat. No, no. What you are right about is Japan is like one of the largest economies in the world. I think it's, you know, mass. It's a huge, huge portion of the equity market. I think U.S. is about 50% of the global equity market cap. Um, Japan is second, I think, with seven or eight. Um, you know, as a percentage of world GDP, it's an enormously wealthy and rich country. And if that country gets into some trouble, Canadians are going to feel it. You can't ignore it. Right. So anyway, it's a really important point that Keith's made. So, so we're gonna, we're biggest... gonna, yeah, I think we should do an episode uh, in a week or two on globalization here and uh, play some Twinkies on that. But uh, Rich, I know you also want to uh, chat. One more thing, though. Wait, whoa. Well, one, one more thing, though. Uh, the three biggest debtors in the world, you have the Americans are one. The Japanese are two, and the Italians are three. Mamma mia. You like this? A lot of debt out there. And, you know, people talk about GDP all the time and, and stuff like It doesn't include debt. Right? There's so much debt out there, and right. we need to be very mindful of, you know, how it moves. Right. This, but that's the thing. So there's so much debt out there. So, like, how, how do you actually move up rates meaningfully off the floor without having some significant restructuring? You can't. Yeah. Someone so will feel the pain somewhere. <laughs> right. So it's either you continue to paper over this like, zombie eco economy uh, or you go through this very painful restructuring of sorts and figure out who the winners and losers are. No, I mean, but one thing, sorry, on the zombie economy thing, I think what's important to note is Japan's real GDP per capita has gone up basically has ticked up and up and up and up. So yes, there's lots of things that are wrong with Japan, Japanese economy, but their standard of living remains one of the best in the world. It's an extreme, make no mistake about it, it is an extremely wealthy country. Um, Canada is falling, by the way. I, I'm, okay, I can't speak to that, but I just, you know, when you look at the real GDP per capita for Japan, it's, it's, not, it's going up, it's not going down. And I know GDP is a flawed of, measure, and et cetera, et cetera. That's they but, had deflation, though, because if you, you know, they've been in this deflationary shock for so long, and you know, as soon as if inflation starts spiking up in Japan, 
you know, that, that number is going to come down dramatically. Yeah, that's fair. But that's, I'm just saying yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, they, they're, they're a wealthy country and they own a crap load of stuff outside of their, their country. I mean, it's anyways, it'll probably manifest it in the way that it is, which is the yen. And we'll see how that goes. But anyway, Steve. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, I guess, you know, bringing, bringing this conversation sort of around full circle is the, the ongoing predicament of, of all these countries um you know who, who's gonna rates rates how quickly how fast how does it impact everyone's currency who are the winners and losers um i mean what are we looking for in europe here i mean uh the more more huge inflation print was it spain had a 40-year eye in inflation just rich i don't know maybe walk us through that and then the ramifications because you know keith's talked about it a lot which is you know the ecb is gonna you know, keep talking about raising rates, but, uh, you know, these guys have been similar to, to Japan, right. Similar to the bank of Japan, which is they're kind of going down the same rabbit hole of like, you know, rates at zero for a very long time. And Mario Draghi will do whatever it takes, you know, print a whole bunch of money, do a whole bunch of QE and just own the entire bond market. Um, but that maybe is starting to come to a head with inflation print. So rich, maybe walk us through that. Yeah, so G- Germany had, well, I mean, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but let me tell you, in Germany, this is not going over well at all, um, especially um, given where everyone knows the ECB is and, and so their supposed view on, on continuing to uh, keep monetary policy at extreme, extremely loose um, levels. But um, yeah, Germany printed, I think, at two, well, I'm looking at it, at uh, 7.3%. Um, which is very, very high. I mean, I, it's probably a 20, 30 year high. I, sorry, I don't have a chart up with me. Um, but I, and, and Spain is the same thing, nearly 10% in headline inflation, um, which I understand is partly due to energy prices spiking and I get it. So that's why I often look at the core inflation um, and that's at 3%. That's almost a, a 12 year high. So even if you sort of X out the, the crisis numbers and, and you, you even that, and that's being generous, um, it's, these are enormous numbers. Um, and it's basically, I think we're, we're cutting to a point where the credibility of the central bankers is, is going to be tested. in I think a real way, I think, uh, I'd love to hear, um, we can talk uh, about the rationing and energy, the market later, but I think, um, it's really the credibility I think will be tested. German, German inflation. So highest in 30 years at 7.3%. Yeah. Uh, and I think as everyone is well aware the Germans do not take inflation very well. They're quite <laughs> familiar with uh, the old Weimar Republic there, so uh, this is this is not going to go over very well. And uh, yeah, Keith, curious to hear your thoughts on this. I think you know you just the headline you just read out is the one that people need to be fixated on here. Really, no one in the Western world has experienced inflation yet. Just, well, you have. You're all bo- you're a boom- baby boomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the boomer. Look at that uh, but like really, though, over the last you know, call it 40 years or 30 years, like no one, like inflation is something financial planners plug into their toolkit or software application. Like it, it, it's irrelevant. Now all of a sudden it is relevant. And for Europeans, especially like that, this, this is earth shattering for that part of the world. And there's absolutely outrage. There's absolutely outrage over there. And it is becoming political which means the central bank will have to do something about it. And it's, again, it, 
as, as soon as those numbers of people, you talk to anyone, if you went to Germany and said, yeah, inflation is 7%, they'd probably laugh at you. We'd say, no, it's not. It's like 45%. Yes, sorry. It's, it's a really good yeah, point. It's, it's the same here in Canada. What, what's our number? What's it, what was the last number? 5.7, some bogus underreported number. Right. That's yeah, a really like, good point, Keith. Yeah, I'm paying more than 5% on, on stuff, obviously. Uh, so anyway, so what's, this, what's the reaction going to be to this? Um, so last week, remember we uh, keep saying we, but it was, I think it was more me. Me suggested that there's going to be talk now about the Bank of Canada maybe doing 50 basis points because the Fed already introduced that concept. Just to talk about it. doesn't mean they're going to do it. Um, so what I read, I think was yesterday morning or today, now they're starting to throw in the idea that maybe the ECB will raise rates about 50 basis points at some point this year, not, not at the next meeting or anything. And again, it's that you gotta, you can't shock the market. Central banks, they like to be as predictable and transparent as possible. And, and it's irrelevant whether you agree or disagree with the policy. They said, you gotta know what are they going to do? So what I expect with, with the ECB, um, you know, we've already said they're gonna sound as hawkish as they can be. Uh, if they now start throwing around that, yeah, they will actually raise rates. But the other thing that they're not talking about, and which what I'm hearing uh, for some people in my network, that they're actually going to expand QE aggressively. So what, what happens with that? Because over, over there, um, again, I think we were throwing the numbers around earlier. In Italy, for example, I think the ECB are buying about 104% of their debt issuance. So which means they're buying up all their debt issuance that they have, plus they're buying more Italian bonds that are available on, on the market to buy. And so if the ECB, if they start raising rates and funding costs start to rise, all of a sudden the Italians, who's now, you know, really run by Draghi, he used to run the ECB, used to work at Goldman, <laughs> used to hang out with Carney, you know, they're all connected guys. Also a criminal. <laughs> and, Actually, uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, I think you need your words alleged when you say those things. Yeah, that's right. So, Oops. Yeah. Yeah. I don't work with Steve. I'm not a partner with him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the story. Um, but the Italians are saying, hey, we, we, we're going to have to issue a lot more debt now coming up because you're raising rates or you're telling the market you might raise rates. You need to increase your QE. And all of a sudden, Spain is saying the same thing. The Portuguese are saying the same thing. Everyone is saying the same thing. So we could have this really wacky monetary moment in, in Europe where they're trying to raise overnight rates, but yet, so they're being hawkish on the front end of the curve and extremely dovish on, on the back end. Sort of, this, sort of the opposite of what, you know, uh, they're, they're doing in Japan. Japan is, you know, trying to keep everything down. So it, again, guys, it's a messed up world. Well, well I gotta, that's a, that's a good segue quickly because I actually want to touch on that because like, <clears throat> like, Okay, Rich, you put out this chart here. Brilliant chart, by the way. Uh, essentially, the Canadian government borrowed a lot of money during the pandemic. Over 60% of that debt uh, matures in, in five years or less. So like in, in an era or an environment where rates are going up and your largest borrower is, is, is the government, um, it becomes extremely costly to roll that debt with rising interest rates, right? So you don't have to basically, you're basically issuing debt more debt to pay the old debt but and yeah i mean but like, oh, sorry. Doesn't that, don't you become dependent on the central bank then to basically sterilize that debt issuance and basically monetize it on their balance sheet like i just don't it's it, it, like i mean it's called what it is it's essentially like it's a ponzi scheme right like the government 
basically prints a bunch of money to issue a bunch of debt to pay the old debt. Give this and a Twinkie. I mean, yeah, of course. That's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, there's another way you, I mean, we've talked about this before and I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but there's a different way you can deal with that issue is would you allow inflation to remain above bond yields basically and in, in for a long, long time. Um, that's what they did in the 1940s. Uh, from 1946 to 1962, you had a situation where they just held interest rates. The 10-year bond yield was at two and inflation was at four or five. And they just maintained that for a long, long time. And real bondholders, sorry, sorry, bondholders will get absolutely caved in in real terms. Um, and I think that that's what the bond market is sniffing out. Make no mistake, bonds are the worst performing uh, worst performing asset this year, except for the Russian ruble and the Turkish lira and a couple other shitty things. I mean, bonds are, I mean, we're seeing 10%, 8%. I think a month to date, the, te- the treasury was down 5%. This is a 10-year bond yield, one of the most important uh, instruments in the whole world, if you own that instrument. Um, you know, so so Keith, I think you're, you're, you've, you've nailed it. That's, I know I'm pretty annoying and and i repeat myself on this financial oppression thing but i think that that's that's the way you these banks are going to deal with it well yes yeah, i mean i'm just looking at this and saying okay like i've now got in canada here i've got it now i've got a trudeau jagmeet government which obviously just wants to spend a ton of money run all these social programs and all that is predicated on issuing a whole ton of debt in, a, in a, <laughs> an environment with rising interest rates is like, it's comical. And I, I just, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's, but it's, it's, it's just important to our listeners and maybe you guys can chime in on this. Like Canada can't just go out and blow these massive deficits and monetize all their debt without other central banks doing it. Cause then you basically have this currency curtain, massive currency debasement, really like all, all the, like I think investor global investors start to sniff that out. Right. So you kind of, you kind of need, you basically need every other central bank almost to sort of play along the same lines. Canada can't act in its own. And that's what's happening. I mean, there's, there's a coordination, you know, behind it all. And uh, you know, that's, that's where we're headed. There's two things, but, but sorry, I just want to say there's two things that come to mind with that. And one is like, you know, how do you protect yourself as an investor? This is why when we talk about being super negative houses, housing and, and house prices, I always, I always pause because in a, in a massively inflationary environment where your currency is being debased systematically for whatever reason, whether it's government or central banks or whatever it is, what's a really good way of protecting your wealth? owning a home that you can live in and keeps your kids warm and you know you can play you know ping pong in the basement or whatever you know what i mean like there's so i wonder you know that the government is also subsidizing through favorable tax policy (laughs) yes that's true too of course but i just and then the other way obviously is i mean to a lesser degree perhaps is the equity market um you know just look at turkey's local currency equity market return that tells you all you need to know about that situation but i don't know it's why I always, I wonder, you know, if you, I think you're right, Steve, that's my view too, but then isn't houses a good or land or commodities a really good way of protecting yourself? Farmland. Saskatchewan farmland. <laughs> Looking interesting. We should start a fund. Guys, I'm here in Newfoundland. I'm getting blinded by something that rarely happens. <laughs> God, you'd never God, look better. That never happened. But speaking of Newfoundland, because this, this is important as well, it ties into uh, Canada. So uh, if, if people are not familiar with it, 
they now have a, a uh, so the big Norwegian oil company that that's here. They've they found this other enormous oil field just off off, off the coast, and uh, they're, they're trying to get final approval, you know, from the feds you know, to go ahead to start develop this. And it keeps getting delayed and pushed back and, and pushed back. And it's it's another example, of course, where the whole climate change policy is coming into play, where you know they don't want dirty oil or any oil. You know you got to go down other routes. But uh, so for Newfoundland here, here they have another asset that they're ready to tap into. A private company is ready to tap into it, put their own capital at risk to do it. Yet the climate change policy out of the uh, out of Ottawa right now, it, it's delaying it, and people down here they don't know if it's if it's going to happen or not. So uh, it, it's a no, it's another big issue. We talk about Alberta all the time, but uh, Newfoundland is another one of these markets that's highly exposed to energy. They have a, unlike Alberta, they have a ton of debt over here. There's a few other things that, that's happening as well. But uh, you know, Steve, in, in your world, maybe this is one of the uh, you know the, the untapped markets as well. You know, from it's also one of the poorest part of the world. It's also one of the part of the poorest parts of Canada that would absolutely love to have some extra tax revenue come through the door. Um, yeah, interesting. I was yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask you guys maybe just like quickly last sort of top hot topic here is <laughs> just reading the uh, the Bloom tubes this morning. Um, I know you know so I think uh, was it you know Biden's talking about releasing what is it a million barrels a day of from their strategic oil reserves. Uh, to sort of fight inflation or sorry, fight oil, high oil prices, which are feeding through to inflation. Um, but then you've got Putin on the basically the same day coming out and saying, I think it was a, as of April 1st, like if you want, if you want our oil, you got to pay for it in Russian rubles. Like, and is he, is he willing to, to actually like forcefully do that and actually shut off like, you know, Russian gas to Europe, which will basically, you know, shut down that entire economy. I think like that, that to me is, I don't know. It's obviously a significant event. I don't know if you guys have any commentary on that. Well, that, that's that's huge. I mean, everyone's been talking about that now this week. So, uh, again, a lot of guys, my network, you know, they're trying to figure. First of all, you know, you're you know, you're playing line poker. You're trying to figure out who's going to blink first. Uh, whether the Russians are serious about it, it seems like they are serious. Meanwhile, the the Europeans, specifically, uh, you know, that that part of the world. You know, they're like to say, well, we already have a contract signed. We are to pay you in dollars. So you're now you're trying to change. So you have a lot of legal stuff that's happening. And then yeah. on the financial side, you're trying to figure out how do you actually do this? You know, how, what, what is the mechanism for doing the exchange? So if, if Germany has to send rubles to Moscow, you know, to complete the transaction, does Germany then, do they, do they sell U.S. dollar reserves that they have tucked away? To buy rubles directly, you know, from from uh, from the Russians. Do they sell euro to do it? And if so, is it is the money? Is it, how are they going to? You can't wire it because you can't do it that way. Is it a, a truck going to send it, or is it just going to be a central bank ledger on each side? Who's going to trust the other side? There's a lot of things at work here, and and you know, the clock you know comes midnight tonight, basically, you know, for April one. I don't um, think it's an April Fool's joke, by the way. So we're not. <laughs> We're not going down that road, but it, it is a serious thing. And if if the Russians are able to pull this off, it's, it's going to have some pretty dramatic changes to the global system. So all of a sudden, you know, everyone who owns commodities or selling commodities, you know, maybe they're able to get around this whole U.S. dollar 
um, you know, uh, double reserve currency system. It's going to be very hard to do, but, you know, over the next 24 hours, then maybe we'll find out you know, which way this moves. It's a serious event. It really is. Um, so I, the only thing I wanted to add to Steve's point is, so I'll, I'll take it further. I think it's going to happen. Um, and the reason I think it's going to happen is because Ener um, Germany is one of the most important manufacturing countries in the world, certainly of Europe. Um, and they're talking about irrationing energy. Um, you know, we're, I mean, which is incredible, right? We're talking, they're, they're talking, they're, Germany's government is in talks with major industry groups talking about how they're going to shutter some industries because they don't have enough energy. Um, they're going to siphon, uh, they're going to direct it towards heating houses and, um, and that kind of thing. Um, in, in, on December 31st of 2021, just a few months ago, they shut, they, you know, they moved again to shutter three more nuclear power plants, insane. Uh, but there's very, very low, um, natural gas inventories in, in, in Europe. I think it's like 20%, which is much, much lower than it normally is. It's very seasonal product, natural gas. Um, there's no LNG terminals because climate change policies prevented the building of those. Um, and so they're talking about rationing um, natural gas in Europe. And without natural gas, you can't, um, so much of the industry in that part of the world, um, you know, industry is energy intensive. Um, and how do they get the energy? They usually burn natural gas. Where does the natural gas come from? It comes from Russia. And so, um, and, you know, like an enormous amount of natural gas um, is, is required. And so my view is instead of, you know, facing this rationing view, I think they're either going to, they're going to strike a deal with, with Russia to keep the, 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 the gas flowing. And it just, it tells you that something that we're not going to have enough time to talk about, but this is a good, maybe a good tease is that climate change is become, climate change policy is becoming macroeconomic policy in a way that I don't think anybody, me included, ever expected, um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, you mean so those factories don't run on wind turbines? <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I mean, you need you need gas to anyways. You need gas to build the steel to make the wind turbines. Anyways, it's just it's 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 not it's no joke, right? I mean, Germany is is twenty five percent of Euro area's GDP. If you looked at the German sentiment indicators that came out last week and again this week, they they've all cratered. Businesses are worried. The consumer confidence indicators are down. I mean, I think Keith rightly you know surmised that there might be a recession there. Um, you know, he said that a few weeks ago, you know, it's, you, 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 energy is really, really important to our global economy and without, you know, and we, and we know how to produce it, make no mistake about that. It's just, um, yeah. Here, here's just, the other thing that happens next though. So if, if you're, if I'm running Germany or any, or even Canada, for example, uh, if I want to reduce the cost of gasoline for everyone, just make it zero taxes. So I don't know what the exact taxes are built into price per liter in Canada. In a Europe, lot. it's extremely high. I bet you they can cut, you know, the price of petrol over there in it probably in half, fifty percent. The Germans, they can pick it up, right? Because they have, you know, they have more money coming in. If the Germans do it, all of a sudden they look at the Italians. Hey, you guys going to do it? And they're saying, we can't really afford it. And then Spain says the same thing. The French are just not organized enough to get it done anyway. It's just going to create this enormous cluster, you know, party there in, in Europe. But I want to circle back to how, how do the Russians get rubles to do this trade? And because they are talking about to say, well, if, if, you're, if you're on the other side, 
you have to open the account with, within the Russian commercial banks, and that's what we'll do the FX. So let's just say, uh, Rich, you're representing the, the Germans, and uh, I'm the Mosque. I'm in the, the bank in Moscow, and you know, you come over and say, "Hey, here's all these euros. We need to buy rubles from you so we can pay for the the nat gas or oil that we're getting." And I kick back and say, "Okay, um, here's the rate that we're going to give you, you know, for the ruble euro exchange." And I'm telling you, it's going to be nowhere close to what the market is. Nowhere close, because I got you bent over the barrel, Rich. You you need my oil, my gas. If you give me dollars, I can't spend them. I'm a Russian bank. I can't go anywhere in the world and, and spend this money. So I'm going to get a real nice rate. And then that's going to tick you off as well. You're going to say, wait, this, this is not working. So I don't think it's going to be this real nice, neat you know, exchange tomorrow, if it's supposed to happen tomorrow. But again, just to explain that it's a very complicated transaction they're trying to do. And then plus as well, say Germany, they said, yeah, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, all of a sudden the Americans are going to tap them on the shoulder and say, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. told you, you're not allowed to do it. So we'll, we'll see where we go with this. Maybe this is the next uh, phase of the, uh, you know, the new aggression that's taking place around the world. I think that's a good, good place to end it. I think that, uh, you know, just sort of summarize when we went around the world here, basically, um, I mean, long story short is it's a, it's a cluster. It's a shit show. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't envy being a, a policymaker right now because I think that like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of winners and losers. There's going to be some body bags and, um, seems like a time right now for, for our listeners to, to be prudent, be on your toes. Um, you know, obviously financial disclaimer, seek out proper financial advice. Uh, Keith, do you have any last comments here? You're waving. It's, it's, uh, speaking of shit shows, the Vancouver event is still on, right? Yes. Still on. I <laughs> uh, guys, I appreciate all your, uh, your emails, um, asking for tickets. Um, I don't have anything in concrete set in stone. We're still working on the venue and stuff. So, so bear with me. Um, well, I booked my flight, so I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. We, the, the flights are booked. Worst case scenario is we'll have, We'll meet uh, a street corner. <laughs> yeah, we will bring a cooler and some chairs and sit in the park. Uh, no, we, we will have a proper venue, but uh, just give us time. When we have the announcement with tickets, we'll certainly let you know. Um, but like I said, as always, we appreciate your support. All we ask that you share this episode with at least one, uh, one friend. And let's continue to build a Looney Hour community here. And uh, we'll see you next week.